Well, we're going to be uh, looking at Psalms 1 and 2, which would be really good if you had in front of you. Open up. Uh, but before I do that, I want to focus a little bit on the book of Psalms itself. It's, I guess it's not something that really gets spoken about very much, but there's an assumption that we know what to do with this book. <laughs> so uh, if you're anything like me, I, I hope that this will be a, a, of help to you. It certainly is a help to me to think about it. Because it seems to me that in most churches, uh, and this is from experience of visiting, when someone gives a sermon on the Psalms, they're usually doing it as a sort of one-off. Yeah? So there was a gap in a preaching rotor or something like that. And what are we going to do? We've only got one week. Um, pick a psalm. Because the psalms, they're great. They're kind of self-contained, aren't they? They feel like this is a really good little thing to do a, a, a psalm and we'll fill up the gap. Until there's another gap that needs filling and then we'll, we'll pick another psalm. Now, many people enjoy reading the psalms and they find that they give them great comfort. They lift us. And they, they sort of cover the whole sweep of human emotions. And that's, that's true, isn't it? When you read through them, they're quite emotional songs. Luther, Martin Luther, the reformer, 500-year anniversary of him nailing his uh, 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg. He wrote this about the Psalms. He preached on them many times. He wrote this. Everything that a pious heart can desire to ask in prayer... It here finds psalms and words to match, so aptly and sweetly that no man, no, nor all the man, men in the world should be able to devise forms of words so good and devout. I mean, that's a really glowing recommendation of the psalms, isn't it? You'll find words to express yourself in the psalms. But whilst we might enjoy the psalms and, you know, get a lot out of them, I think a number of us, if we're being honest, and this was true of me, find the book of Psalms a little bit tricky. Let me explain why. So you could be reading along quite happily in a psalm, and the psalmist is talking about how God, God cares for us and protects us, and then suddenly, like out of the blue, he's crying out for the death of his enemies. And you think, where did that come from? I mean, I'm not, you know, I've got problems with a few people, but, you know, that's not really what mine want to echo. And so suddenly there's a bit of a problem. Or perhaps, maybe this is familiar to some others of you, you decide, you know, you've been asked to lead the prayer meeting. And you think, well, it'll be really nice. We'll read a psalm at the beginning of the prayer meeting, get it going. And, you know, you pick one. So it's, in the Lord I take refuge, Psalm 11. It's great. It's a really good start, isn't it? Taking refuge in the Lord. But then the psalm takes a nasty turn, doesn't it, towards the end. And it's, it's talking about, and that, that psalm ends with raining fiery coals and burning sulphur on the wicked. And you're thinking, it's not really a prayer meeting sort of thing, perhaps. And then you feel, because of that, slightly guilty, because you decided to chop that bit off the end of the psalm, because it's not quite as uplifting as you'd like it to be. And we know that we shouldn't play pick and mix with the scripture. So it troubles us a bit to do that, right? Or is this just me? <laughs> I think it's most of us. So it seems to me people then are a bit muddled about what to do with the Psalms, if we're honest. We love them, but we're not quite sure what to do with them. And so we get a bit vague. And, and it's difficult for us as well, because it's a huge book. And it sits right in the middle. It's like it's been put prominently right in the middle of our Bibles as well, isn't it? And it's taking up some serious real estate there, and you can't avoid it. So you might be tempted to sideline, perhaps, a book like Obadiah, 
It's got 21 verses. Hands up who can sum up for me, Obadiah. Exactly. So, so you feel like, okay, it's maybe not quite as critical. But the book of Psalms is difficult to do that with. It's, you, you might think that, um, you know, we'll, we'll just we'll leave the Psalms a little bit and we'll do the more pertinent bits of the Bible, the gospel kind of bits. But then you discover, as you read through the New Testament, that the book of Psalms is the most quoted book of the Old Testament. I mean, the, the writers of the New Testament are quoting it all over the place. It's crucial to them. They're drawing great deep truths out of it. So you can't just leave it alone. And, uh, you know, I, uh, so these are the things that worry me. Uh, I then meet, I meet with a lot of blokes uh, in Kingston. We do one-to-ones. We open the Bible together. I ask them how their, how their quiet times are going. Uh, some of them, a few years back, were reading through, I don't know if you've ever tried doing this, reading through the whole of the Bible in a year. And I ask them how that's going. And they'll say to me, oh, at the moment I'm in the Psalms, and I'm really... I'm just finding it really hard working through the Psalms. It's really hard work. And that's the book that seems to bother them the most. You know, they've got through numbers. <laughs> and then it gets to Psalms, and it's just like, this is unending. It just keeps going and going and going. And they have to read that twice on the program that most of them are doing it as well. And it feels like a slog. And that's concerning too. And then a couple of years ago, we decided in our church to preach a series for our young preachers who are learning preaching. This wasn't my choice, by the way, to preach through the whole of Psalm 119. And so we broke it into chunks. That's 22 chunks. And mo- you know, it's all right, the first few, but as the weeks went on, I, you know, it feels like the same thing over and over. Because that psalm's basically just saying, I love the Bible, isn't it? They're just saying it 176 times. Oh, the Bible's brilliant. That's what that psalm's about. And so it becomes troubling and difficult. And these are concerning things. So if you're going to indulge me, and I, you, you have to now, a slightly longer introduction to doing Psalms 1 and 2, let me talk to you about a few things I've discovered about the book of Psalms. Because it, now, this doesn't necessarily mean you've been doing it wrong all these years. Who am I to say that? You've probably been doing most of what I say. Um, and, and you've probably been getting loads of good stuff out of the Psalms. But perhaps some of these things will help you to get even more, to dig even deeper into the Psalms. So let me, let me introduce them then uh, this way. The Psalms, they, they tend to divide people. They're perhaps a little bit like Marmite, which some people apparently love. I, well, I love it, but some people apparently hate. They don't really like it, and, and they're really put off it. Well, why is that true of the Psalms? Well, for starters, they're poetry. They're poetry. And I've got to admit, I mean, I'm not a particularly poetic soul, okay? It's not my thing. I struggled with poetry at school. For me, I mean, I I like a cheeky limerick, okay? For me, poetry has to rhyme. But then you open up the book of Psalms, which promises to be fantastic poetry, but it doesn't rhyme. (laughs) That's difficult for me. I don't like things that don't rhyme. I'm not arty like that. The Psalms don't, and, and maybe they did in their own language, but they don't. So it's a hard literature to get to grips with. And so for many years, I wasn't a big Psalms reader. It's not a literature that even appeals to me. Additionally, and here's a confession, I remember my lecturer giving me a talk, an introduction to the book of Psalms when I was doing ministry training. And one of the comments he made was, the majority of sermons I hear preached in the Psalms have got it wrong. And so I was thinking, oh, crumbs. Uh, I don't want to preach on the Psalms then and get it wrong. So I was slightly panicky. 
And then I was asked to preach a series in the Psalms at our church a number of years back. And I thought to myself, well, this is an opportunity. And, and actually, it was quite exciting to go back and look at why do I struggle with them and how can I get more out of them? And so what I've given you, you should have found on your seat, is a little handout that I found really helpful when I approach the Psalms. And if you can get this in your head, I think it's really, really good way of, of looking at them. Now, I don't want to spend too long on this because I want to get stuck into Psalms 1 and 2, believe it or not, which we've just read. So my plan this morning is to whiz you through that little sheet just very, very briefly and see if I can get some of you up and running uh, on this. And then we'll look at Psalms 1 and 2. Now, I was talking to my sister a little while back. She struggles with sickness. She's in chronic pain most of the time. Uh, She's been in a wheelchair for many, many years. And she said to me, Andy, you know what people keep telling me I should read the Psalms and they'll be a great comfort to me, but I don't, I don't find that. She said, maybe the problem's with me and maybe I'm more of a, I, I feel like I'm more of a Job personality than a Psalms personality. I've got more in common with Job than with David, perhaps. Now, perhaps that's the way that most of us approach reading the Psalms. That is, we put ourselves in the Psalm that we're reading And we try to relate to and connect to the feelings being expressed in the psalm, whether it's sorrow or fear or praise or whatever. And then we want to echo the words from our heart to God, right? I guess that's the way most of us read them. So in other words, we read them devotionally. We put ourselves in the psalm and then we apply it directly to us or we try to. And that might be helpful to you, as I say, but I want to suggest that's not primarily what the Psalms are there for. Now, of course, they may provide us with helpful ways that we can respond to God. But first of all, and here's the the big important point. So if you're writing things down, this is the thing to write down. They are not supposed to be our words to God. They are supposed to be God's word to us. I think that's where we go wrong sometimes. They're not supposed to be our words to God, but rather God's word to us. And that's crucially important. So uh, up on the screen, I just put up this verse from Colossians 3.16. Maybe you know this one. Colossians 3.16, can we get that up there? If not, then we'll have to turn it up in our... Oh, there we, there we go. So uh, Colossians 3.16. Have a look at this. This is what Paul writes. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. There it is. That's the use of psalms there. So look carefully at that verse. What does Paul want for the believers that he's writing to, and by implication for you and me? Paul wants the word of Christ to dwell in you richly. That's what he wants. He wants the word of Christ to saturate your inner being. I think that's a way to put it, isn't it? To saturate you. You know, it's, uh, Charles Spurgeon said of uh, one of my favourite authors, Bunyan, I love the Pilgrim's Progress. He said of, of, of Bunyan, if anywhere you cut him, he bleeds bibline. What he's saying by that is that he's saturated with the word of God. Whenever you look at Bunyan, you see he's applying the word of God in what he's saying all the time. He's saturated by it. Now, how does Paul say that will happen? Look, look at the verse. As we teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. That's how it will happen. And how are we to go about doing that, Paul, you might ask? He says, he tells you, 
as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So, in the light of what Paul is saying here, what are the psalms for? They are nothing other than the word of Christ. Is that right? They're not my words to him. They're his words to me, to us. And that means I've got to do as much work on understanding God's word to me in the Psalms as I would do in any other book. And in actual fact, you've got to take a similar approach. How is, the, how is this that I read in the Psalms, the word of God that teaches me so that I can then teach others, so that we can then teach each other, so that the word is then dwelling richly in us. That's the point. Ironically, then, there's no special technique to reading the Psalms. There's not a secret tip. Reading the Psalms requires us to approach them roughly the same way we'd approach any other book of the Bible. And so the tools I've given you on that sheet, you could use the principles of them anywhere in the Bible. They're good practice. So let me take you through that little sheet uh, before we look at Psalms 1 and 2. First point, if you've got that sheet in front of you, is to remember that they're set in history. That's the first thing to ask yourself and to think about when you open up a psalm. What is the setting in history? How do they fit into the Bible's storyline as it's going along? You know, what was happening at the time the psalm was actually written? That's a key question, isn't it? And you can't always figure that out, but quite often you can. And it is hugely helpful. After all, the context is very un- important, isn't it, to understanding what we read. And now the first clue that this is the right approach with the Psalms is that on the top of a good number of them, the bit that we don't read out when we're told to read a Psalm, which we should read out, uh, actually gives you the context in which it was written. Flick the page over if you've got Psalm 1 open to Psalm 3, and you'll see. Psalm 3. The setting there is quite explicit. It's very clear. It's written by King David, and it was composed, he wrote this song down, directly because of an episode in his life where he had to run away from his son Absalom. We're told that. And you can read that story in 2 Samuel, chapter 15, all the way through to 90. So if you want to understand the psalm, it would be a very good idea, wouldn't it, to open up 2 Samuel. So we know the author. David. We know the event that's happening in his life that made him write it, and that is very, very useful for working out the correct meaning of the words. So that's the first rule. Second thing, second tip on that sheet, they were collected and ordered with original readers in mind. So now you've got to think about the reader, not just the writer. So remember, this is a compilation of songs put together for a specific group of people, actually. The book of Psalms is different from just the individual Psalms. This is 150 songs written down, well, not written down, but compiled, that's slightly different, for people who've returned from exile in Babylon and have returned to the land of Israel and they're sitting in Jerusalem moping around. They're for particular people. So think about those original readers of the compilation. The Psalms themselves are written down over a 1,000-year period. You can find Psalms written by Moses in there. Read the superscriptions at the top. But after return of the Jewish people from captivity, which you can read about in Ezra and Nehemiah, so you know what's going on, that's when this lot were all put together. So after that had happened, 
the people had this book assembled for them. And when they've got that happening, they've got the whole history of the Old Testament behind them. And then an editor sits down, he puts on his headphones or something like that, and he gets out all of the Psalms and he starts listening to them all, and he starts to make what is basically a mixtape for the people, people of the time. Now, I don't know if you've ever made a mixtape for someone. Uh, if you're the younger generation, I think it's called a playlist or something, and it's all sort of virtual and in clouds and things like that. I actually can't remember whether I did one for Sarah when we were dating. It was like 20-something years ago for Sarah. But the idea is not that you just get all your favourite songs and shove them on a tape. Yeah, It's that thought goes into it. They're carefully selected. Not just because they've got a good tune, but you think about the words as well, aren't you? You collect each track, and then you, and then you take each track and you put them in order. So this one's got to follow that one. Yeah? And that, you know, there's an emotional sort of route through the mixtape to make a really good mixtape. Listen, that is what's going on in the Psalms. They're not just random. They're not just greatest hits, chuck them all on a, on a, on a tape. And we need to ask why. What's the book really about, the book of Psalms? The Psalms are a collection of 150 songs, and they are arranged in five books. Have you ever noticed that? So if you look above Psalm 1, you've got book 1. You'll find there's a book 2, 3, 4, and 5 as well. Have you ever asked yourself why that is? What's in them? Why they're arranged how they are? They're like a box set containing five albums, and we've got to get to the bottom of why. And with some work, I think it's possible to follow a flow through the whole book, which is very exciting. It starts to open up the book, deeper sort of levels of it. But let, I haven't got time to go over all of that, but critically, Psalms 1 and 2 that we just had read, they're an introductory overture to the whole work. So I don't know if you've ever been uh, to like, like a, a musical, like, I love Les Miserables. And you get this opening theme, don't you? And then in incidental bits between acts, you might catch a little glimpse of that line just again. It's, that's what's happening in the book of Psalms as well. This so this is important. This is the big, the whole orchestra is playing the introduction here in Psalms 1 and 2. And it starts Psalm 1. Blessed is the man. Oh, that's key. Blessed is the man. In fact, the whole collection closes with the same theme. In Psalm 144, it's bookended with that, saying, blessed are the people of whom this is true, blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. That's Psalm 144. You can find it on page 631. And after that, all you get is a few praise psalms at the end of the book. So it starts with blessed is the man, and then it ends with blessed is the man. Yeah? That's what the book's all about. Blessed. Who are the blessed? Who are the blessed? That's the question on the mind, and think about it, that's the question on the mind of the original readers. Who, who are the blessed? That's what they're asking. They've just gone through exile, they've returned to Jerusalem, they must be questioning in their heads, has God given up on us? What's going on? What's actually happening? Are we still God's special people? Are we the blessed? Are we the blessed ones? And so I want to suggest the collection hangs together to address that very question. Think about that when you read them. Okay, point three. 
I'm going to bring this together for you, hopefully, <laughs> when we do what Psalms 1 and 2. These are just brief. So point three, just very, very quickly. Remember that all of these Psalms are pointing to Jesus. That's so crucial. They all point to Jesus, like all of the Old Testament does. So in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, this is what Jesus said. Some of his last words to his disciples, he said this. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's right. So all of the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus. It all points his direction. And our job is to ask the question when we read it. How? How's this pointing to Jesus? There's three good questions I put on your sheet to ask to help you to figure that out. First one, is there a prophetic element in the psalm? Perhaps an obvious reference to an expected Messiah that's going to come, an expected rescuer, an expected king. Secondly, is there a problem in the psalm that actually gets resolved and solved? There's the final solution, it's Jesus. Is that what's happening in the psalm? Thirdly, is there a hope? Is there a hope in it, a longing that is fulfilled in Jesus? Oh, he fulfills it all to the letter. A victory, a promise, something still not there, but we're waiting for it. Okay, and then the fourth point, briefly, remember, and always remember this with the Bible, they're, they're written to change us. These are written to change us. That conviction is born out of those well-known verses, I hope we all know it as evangelicals. Um, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed, it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's what all scripture's got to do. It's got to thoroughly equip us for every good work that God has called us to. So we established that the Psalms are the word of God. They are scripture, and, so, and that means we've not done our job until we've figured out how they are intended to make a change in our lives, our thinking, our hearts, our living, our doing, so that we're trained and equipped. Now, much more can be said uh, about reading the Psalms. I did a huge seminar on this once and actually took people, believe it or not, through the whole 150 Psalms to show them the melody through it. I'm not going to do that to you because it will probably, you'll never invite me back. Uh, but that's an introduction to help you to just to get going. So if you want to take that piece of paper, tuck it into your, 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 your book at Psalms. Have a go at it. Ask yourself those questions maybe when you next read a Psalm. I found them very, very helpful. And I hope it will enrich your reading of the Psalms. So now we're going to have a worked example of it in Psalms 1 and 2, but we're going to sing first just to get your brains reset slightly. <laughs> and uh, then we'll look at Psalms 1 and 2 together. Right, take your seats. Okay, you ready for some more? Good. <laughs> I'll take that as a yes. So Psalms 1 and 2, let's get those open in front of us. They're such exciting Psalms. Uh, they're, they're really good. Let me read it to us again. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Oh, he's like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. 
Here's the question then, starting the whole of the book of Psalms. Where do you find real happiness? Where do you find real happiness? And the world has many answers to that question. In the pursuit of happiness, people run over the predictable things, don't they? Wealth, beauty, success. It's always the same, actually. But even the wisdom of the world, have you noticed in its sort of hallmark card way, seems to recognise that that is chasing after the wind. It's a wild goose chase with no goose. You can recount, uh, you know, countless examples of this going wrong. You just look, open up the papers. Actually, we love to revel in the fact that this is not true, that those things don't deliver happiness. I read a couple of years ago that premiership footballers, I don't know if you read this, that those, the survey was those who earned over £30,000 a week. How many, of you have, how many of you ever earned £30,000 a week? But those that did that, that were on that kind of salary, when they retired from football, most of them were bankrupt within five years, less than five years. Misery. Their money just brought them misery and debt. And that's just one of you can recount hundreds of examples, can't you? And instead, the wisdom of the world actually, actually advocates being content with what we have. Even the world gets that, that that's better. Or to put another, another way, this is what they would say, look, look within ourselves. That's a way of saying, be content with what you are and what you have, isn't it? Let me put this up. There's an American novelist. Here we go. I thought this is actually quite a funny quote from a, a, a lady called Ramona Anderson. She sums up the way the world thinks really well. Just think about this, what she's saying. She says, people spend a lifetime searching for happiness, looking for peace. They chase idle dreams, addictions, religions, even other people, hoping to fill the emptiness that plagues them, right? The irony, she says, oh, in her wisdom, is that the only place they never needed to search was within. Oh, isn't that wise? Happiness within? I mean, you've got, that's got to be a joke, right? You try spouting off that kind of nonsense to someone who's suffering from chronic depression. Try telling the depressed teenager who hates themselves and is full of self-loathing, oh, just look within. That's what you've got to do. Look inside. And she'll say to you, well, that's just the problem. When I look inside, I hate what I see. That doesn't give me happiness. And look at the quote, the world's wisdom. Look at it. Ramona herself, bless her, has just proposed we search within to find something to fill the emptiness within. How does that make any sense? How do you fill emptiness with emptiness? Is that really the best that the world can offer us? And uh, the conclusion would be the world doesn't have the answer to happiness, and neither do false teachers that are actually in some churches. They'll tell you there's a gospel that claims you can be financially rich, perfectly healthy, and physically beautiful. And even if there was a gospel that claimed those things, which I've never seen in the Bible anywhere, It'd need to do much better than that to provide any happiness, wouldn't it? We've just seen. Because we already know those things don't provide happiness. There's plenty of rich, healthy, beautiful, miserable people out there, aren't there? But from the first sentence of Psalm 1, it's clear that God wants you to be really happy. That's what the word means. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. Blessed literally means 
deeply, deeply happy and content. He's deeply happy and content is the man. You know, that's how the collection actually ends, by telling you that the, the blessed, the deeply content, are those who are the Lord's people. Because they know that the Almighty is watching over them and giving them a joy and a happiness and a contentment. That's where happiness is. And God wants you to be happy because that's how he starts this whole collection. And Psalms 1 and 2 go right, they go with each other. They're supposed to be read together. They're one psalm really together. They're to be combined. And they're the introduction to the whole collection. They're like that big opening number in the musical. You'll hear echoes of it through the whole book of Psalms. It's what the whole book is about. How can I really enjoy a happy life? That's what the book's about. What's the secret? Well, the first thing that Psalm 1 tells us, and it's so crucial, is that happiness is found in the word, not in the world. Happiness is found in the word, not in the world. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. That's where real happiness is. Look at the contrast, because what you get in Psalm 1 is two people really contrasted. Two ways to live contrasted. Two ways you can live your life. Have a look at this, this man, the blessed or happy man. He's made a choice about how he's going to live. He's out walking one day and he hears the counsel of the wicked. And he doesn't stop there. That's not where he wants to be. He doesn't linger. He turns away because had he stopped, do you see the vortex he would have been sucked into as those verses come out? Had he allowed the counsel of the wicked, look at those verses, to permeate his thinking, it would then have affected his behaviour. He would soon have been, he'd have found himself standing, standing in the way of sinners. And inevitably, that would have ended up in him sitting in the seat of mockers. Because thinking leads to action, and action leads to speaking. His whole being would have been sucked in, and every part of his life tainted by the wickedness around him. The, a wise person once said this, maybe you've heard this, sow a thought and you'll reap a deed. Sow a deed you'll reap a habit. Sow a habit, you'll reap a character. And sow that character, and you'll reap a destiny. It's very true, isn't it? It's like a downward slope that you get sucked into. But he, this blessed man, he didn't go down there. He turned away. He wasn't seduced. Instead, he turned to something else entirely. He turns to the word of God, the law. God's requirements for us to be his blessed people. And we're told here, he delights on them and meditates on them day and night. God's word is percolating through his mind, you see? It's affecting his every word and his every deed. That's the blessed man, that's the happy man. How is he blessed? Well, have a look in verses 3 and 4. He is blessed with prosperity, not poverty. That's how he's blessed. This this, in Psalm 1, is the real prosperity gospel. It's the real one, not the fake one. There is a prosperity gospel. Have a look at it. Look at this second contrast. Verse 3, he is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does, oh, it prospers. Whatever he does, prospers. Not so the wicked, they're like chaff that the wind blows away. 
See, this, this meditator, this doer, this proclaimer of the law, we're told is like a tree. Picture a tree. It's a tree by water. And it's got its branches. It's, fu- it's full of life. The sap's all coming up. It's got the life, got the leaves. It's got strength. It's got permanency there as this tree. He's prospering. He's green. He's verdant. That's real prosperity. Real prosperity in contrast with the poverty of verse 4. Not so the wicked, we're told. The man who got sucked into that vortex of verse 1, he's like chaff. You know, Sarah and I visited Colombia when we first got married. My, my sister's parents-in-law had a farm in Colombia. They were missionaries. And uh, they grew coffee on, on, on the farm. We actually, I am a, absolutely love coffee, so I got involved in making coffee. It was brilliant. One part of the process was to get all the beans with all these little bits of flaky coating on them. This is, obviously, I'm, I'm no, no, these are my words. And, and you, you throw them up in the air and you let the wind blow away the little bits that are light while the beans all drop back down into a bowl. You're sort of throwing it up and catching them. That's how the wicked are. These little bits that come off, they're worthless. It's the worthless bit of the wheat or the coffee. You beat out the kernels of grain and the outer husks, they just all fall off. Not useful for anything. Listen, it's a waste product. (laughs) In honesty, it's a waste product. No value. You throw it out. You let the wind take it. And that's the wicked. See the contrast? Fruitful tree. Lush green leaves. Chaff blown away. Waste product. Forgotten. Jesus' advice, Jesus' advice was, better to give away everything that you might be rich towards God. Have your treasure in heaven. There you'll, be, there you'll be wealthy. Because the biggest contrast is seen between these two ways of living is seen in verses 5 to 6. It's seen when the judgment comes. Because the judgment determines who is really poor. Verse 5. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Do you see what real poverty is? It is the inability to stand before God in the judgment when it comes. It is the inability, in the words of this psalm, to enter into the assembly, the gathering of the righteous, to be amongst the righteous. Poverty is to be on the outside, in the cold, in the dark, not in the gathering of the people. Poverty is none other than to be condemned to hell. That's what poverty is, spiritual poverty. And that is the place that Jesus himself describes using words like darkness, pain, torment, weeping, gnashing of teeth, and agony. You see... The world we live in might be tempted to judge poverty and wealth by the things that we have or the things that we achieve here and now. But this psalm makes it very clear, doesn't it? That what we have here and now is of very little consequence. What matters is whether you'll be able to stand, to stand in the judgment. That's nothing new to us, actually, because Jesus said exactly the same thing as Psalm 1, didn't he? Have a look at Mark 8. I think if you've got it on the screen. Mark 8, verses 35 to 38. 
Jesus says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Real prosperity is found in having your life saved for the new creation. Having Jesus unashamed when he comes in his glory. So here's the big, important question. Are you ready for it? Who is the blessed man of verse 1? Who? Thought about that? Who is the man or woman who consistently meditates on obeys, loves, is permeated by the law of God and can confidently assert, oh, I am blessed. Who is that? Now, how would the first readers of this psalm have answered that question? Well, I'll tell you how they probably would have answered it, unless they were slightly deluded. They said, well, it's not us. We've just returned from 70 years of judgment because of our sin. And what's more, we've only been back a couple of minutes and we're already sinning again. Have you read Ezra and Nehemiah? Their track record proves that all they consistently do, the only consistency of their life, is to get sucked back into the vortex of verse 1 as soon as possible. It's not them and it's not us either, is it? It's not us either, if we're being honest. Unless, of course, you're sitting there thinking, yeah, I, you know what, I really do, Andy. I, I meditate on the law of the Lord day and night. I delight in doing all that he commands consistently. Well, if it's not us, it's not certainly not me. Well, who is it? Who is it then? And when you get to the New Testament part of the Bible and you start to read through the Gospels, it becomes abundantly clear there is only one person who fits the bill. It is the perfect, sinless Son of God. Jesus is the only one who qualifies. Jesus is the blessed man, of course. We don't qualify. We're not the blessed people, are we? Not according to this psalm. And therefore, none of us can stand on the judgment day. The interesting thing is, though, is that Jesus, the only one who potentially could stand on the judgment day, on the basis of how he lived, didn't. He didn't stand. He, the innocent one, was judged. Why? To what benefit? Well, the answer is in Psalm 2. I told you they go together as a pair. Have a look at Psalm 2. Get, look at, get Psalm 2 in front of you. This is quite exciting stuff, I think. See, this psalm is about the king that God promised to David. The king who would one day be da- born from David's family line and bring final peace and reign forever. And it's a psalm that the New Testament clearly applies to Jesus in at least two places. It says, yes, this is Jesus. We're left with no doubts. Well, have a look quickly at that psalm, that psalm about Jesus. The psalmist conjures up an awe-inspiring picture, actually. In verses 1 and 2, we look. Against this king, we're being told about, the nations conspire. The world seems to be anti him. 
The nations conspire against him. The rulers of the world reject him. They take a stand against him because they don't want him. In verse 3, we're told they don't want him to rule over them, and they say, let us break the chains and throw off their fetters. But then we're told in verse 4, God laughs. He sees these little ants shaking their fists, saying we reject the king, and he just laughs. Because he has firmly, eternally established his king on the holy hill. Verse 6, this is the great king, and all will bow to him. The king is the son of God, we're told. And all the nations have been actually, they're given to him to rule over and to judge, verses 7 to 9. It's, it's an amazing picture, isn't it? It's a big revelation of who Jesus really is with his gloves on. It's a picture of power and authority. The nations tremble when they get a true glimpse of his anger. Do you see that? They're shuddering. Those who thought they could mistreat him, who thought they could conspire and plot against him and reject him. But how should we respond to him? Look at verse 12. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Kiss the son. Kiss the son. That's not the kind of continental greeting that you get when you go to France or something like that, where you, you, know, you kiss each other, peck on the cheek sort of thing. This is basically an equivalent to a handshake. It's like, oh, how do you do? It's not like that. No, this is to rightly fall, prostrate to the ground before him, before his awesome majesty. It's how you would treat the conquering emperor who has overthrown you. The unworthy sinner should tremble before the majesty and authority of the king of kings. It's a terrific psalm. Before his burning gaze, all of mankind is undone. We see what we really are. But don't miss the punch line, the last line of the psalm. It's just beautiful. Look at it. Blessed. There it is. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Here's the key. How might I be one of the blessed? How can I be one of the blessed? The answer is refuge, not religion. Refuge not religion. He invites us to become the blessed man of, of, of Psalm 1. What must we do? Well, very clearly this time tells us to stop living your way. Now, lay down your arms, you rebel. Stop rebelling against God's king. Stop rejecting him and get on your knees. Verse 12 tells us, kiss the son, or in the language of the New Testament, repent. Turn around. That is, admit your poverty. Admit the poverty of Psalm 1, your spiritual poverty. The same poverty that Jesus spoke about when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Admit that. And be reassured, the New Testament tells us about Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. That's it, that's the exchange of Psalms 1 and 2. Come to God admitting that you are in the spiritual poverty trap. You are a sinner in desperate need of a saviour, a rescuer. And then simply take refuge in him. Trust him. Because blessed are all who take refuge in him. And then you will be fruitful. And then you will prosper. 
And then you'll be able to stand on the judgment day and enjoy the assembly of the righteous. It's amazing, isn't it? Psalms 1 and 2. It is nothing other than the gospel that permeates through the whole of God's word. That's what the Psalms are. In short, let me sum it up for you and then I'll close. Blessed is the man who reads God's word and in it discovers that blessed are all those who take refuge in Jesus, God's king. It's the gospel. It's wonderful.